Welcome to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. In Luke 24, Jesus told two of his followers that the entire Bible was about him. Yet their reading of the Bible had not actually prepared them for Jesus. Sadly, the same thing is still happening today, even in churches. This podcast is an invitation to reread the Old Testament with Jesus in mind, to unbind it from the many ways it's been misread and misapplied. I hope you'll join me. Here we go. Welcome back to the podcast. For this week five, I've decided to title this podcast, Made in the Image of God. And having worked through the majority of chapter one, at least from the perspective in Genesis one, at least from the perspective of the pattern of things that are unformed and then things that are uninhabited and God forming them and then inhabiting them, I thought that it would be very fitting to focus in a little bit on Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the point at which on day six of creation, after having formed the dry land on day three, God then chooses to inhabit that dry land with the animals and the trees and then the human beings who he appoints to rule over that part of the creation. And so in Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28 are actually some of Jesus' favorite verses to often quote in the Gospels, and he does it for different reasons. Um, And I hope to show you some of those through this podcast, but also next week I'm going to insert as the podcast on the episode a sermon I preached about a year ago Um, which are some of Jesus' words in some conflict he's having with the religious leaders where he references, I think, in subtle ways but very powerful ways, this passage from from Genesis 1. And so, made in the image of God, there are tons of things that could be said about this particular passage, but I would like to just begin by reading it, point out a few things along the way, and really what my main goal is, is to allow the Bible— to speak on its own first. Um, I am persuaded to begin this podcast largely from the conviction that we bring a lot of things to the Bible that we are expecting the Bible to address without allowing the Bible to simply tell its own story. And so there are certain things that we will see when we read Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that based on what we've talked about already, from Genesis or from the Babylonian creation myth that we looked at last time, things that will stand out as major differences in that account of the creation. But ultimately, what I want to do is sort of prepare you because the way Genesis 3 unfolds and the way Genesis 2 explains in more detail the creation of man and what his role is in the garden and in the world, um, those are themes that we'll be picking up again what we see in Genesis 1 26 through 28. So without me simply rambling forever, let me just read the passage first so we at least have it in our minds and then we can go from there. So in Genesis 1 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So a few things that I want to point out as we begin to kind of try to understand what is exactly happening here and what relevance does this have for the rest of the biblical story. I think the first thing I want to point out, especially when you get at verse 28 where it talks about man and woman having dominion over the birds of the heavens and over the beasts of the field and over every living thing that creeps on the ground. Another word for dominion is the word for rule. Let them rule. Let them have dominion. It's where we get our idea of kingdom. It's it's having the rule and the reign over certain things. Now, nobody to this point has defined exactly what that means yet, but being made in the image of God is going to have a direct relationship to how we interpret what that actually means. But before we get there, we you, you have to remember, if you do, that on day four, Um, In Genesis 1, when God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. We're told in verse 16 that God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. So we again, as I've already alluded to when we were walking through Genesis 1, in uh, in more detail in a previous episode, that the sun and the moon, being the greater and the lesser light, are those that are put in place to rule that particular domain, that particular part of the creation. And we know that that's the case. And and Jeremiah will reference the how how well we can count on the rising and setting of the sun each day. We can rely on God's you know, faithfulness to keep his covenant promises. And so in the same way that you and I can expect that the sun is going to go down every night and it's going to rise again every morning, we can be confident that God is going to carry out his own will in the world. And so what we see is that the sun and the moon rule. They have dominion. They have ownership over that part of the creation such that you and I can mark our days and seasons and years and signs we know that these things can be counted on astrologers have known about the sun and it's you know well what they used to think was it's revolving around the earth and now we know that it's the earth revolving around the sun but these things can be counted on they give structure they provide order to that particular part of the creation and that's something very very similar to what's happening when mankind is given dominion. Mankind is meant to rule as image bearers of God. And I guess at this point we could answer the question, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean, number one, to be made in God's image? And number two, what does it mean then to rule as his image bearers? And I think those are two pretty basic questions, but questions that we need to ask and then answer before we do much else. And I think as we read the, the, the first chapter in Genesis, even some of the things that show up right before we get to verses 26 through 28 is this idea that many of the livestock and the beasts of the, of the earth 
um, they it, it says in verse 25 that God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And then if you back up in verse 11, it says, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And so what you have is this repeated phrase, each according to its kind, each according to its kind. You have beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. You have plants on the earth, each according to its kind. And when you insert the idea, particularly with the plants, that when a plant grows up, it has seed according to its kind, which then drops the seed on the soil. A new plant springs up, which is identical to the plant that once um, dropped the seed from it, or identical in the sense that if an apple tree springs up and drops a seed on the ground, the tree that's going to grow up out of the soil from that seed is going to be another apple tree. It's going to be according to its kind. Now, if we take just the way Genesis is written and we take those two concepts, according to its kind or according to its nature, and we talk about the seed that is inherent in them, also according to its kind, fruit trees bearing seed in which is their kind, beasts of the earth according to their kind, and so on. We take those two concepts, if we can very simply begin at at a very surface level and say if trees have things that resemble their own kind and animals have things that resemble their own kind we know that there's an element at which so far in the creation nothing resembles God in any way God doesn't have something that's according to his kind it's just his own creation though has counterparts within it that correspond according to their kind that have similarities, that have relationship. And when you talk about the idea of the seed in the fruit tree, this is something that Genesis 3 speaks very clearly about when it refers to the offspring of Eve, the children that come from Eve. We like to use the word offspring, but it is just as acceptable to use the Hebrew word for seed. Your seed coming from your body will crush the head of the serpent and and we'll get to what that means in Genesis 3 when we get there but the fact that human beings also can produce seed or offspring and create something else that is from them that resembles them we can continue to work that concept backwards and say in some sense to be made in the image of God is to be made in some sense according to his kind. We are like God in some way. We are unlike him in some ways, but I think what is super crucial for a discussion, particularly as it relates to who human beings are, why we have value, what we are called to do, who we are called to be, It's crucial that we start not with how we are different from God. We start with how we are similar to him. 
We start by recognizing who we were made to be. We need to see a robust view of who we are before we realize what we've lost because otherwise we'll never know that we are actually called to be put in in quite a prominent position. And I think there's a view, at least I had one growing up of a of you know mankind is is just sinful and he's fallen and he needs to be set free from his fallenness well that's true but why why do we need to be set free from our fallenness and what does it mean to be fallen well you and i have no way of knowing that unless we first know who we were created to be what we were called to do and to be and what makes us worth redeeming in the first place and it's right here in Genesis 1 26 through 28 and so God is saying let us make man in our image after our likeness according to our kind and then in verse 27 Oh, I'm sorry, continuing in verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is the first time in the discussion so far we're only 27 verses through the bible so you wouldn't expect it to have come up before but with these two concepts of according to its kind in our image after our likeness these kinds of repeated phrases over and over with seed bearing fruit in them according to its kind when you get the idea of the seed and the reproducing and the multiplication, all of these ideas is, is where we actually begin when we come to understand why it is that in Genesis 1, 27, we are told that God created man in his own image, man simply being the generic word for humanity, if you're reading the verse along with me. In the image of God, he created him, so he created this person but he remember he's talking about man so he's created mankind and yet yes the first one that he creates which we will get to in chapter two is in fact adam which just means from the ground adam um mankind that's basically what this means but there is a in the image of god he created him male and female he created them And so you get this, it's kind of poetic. If you're looking at your Bible, um, it's going to break this section off separate from the rest of the paragraph. There's a lot of text in my Bible. It's one of these single column Bibles, but right uh, broken off with spaces on either side of it is this verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's this patterned structure which is communicating all sorts of things. If, as you're reading along in Genesis 1, and you come to verse 27, and you remember back to the podcast episode I gave just a week ago, which was a competing creation narrative, the Babylonian creation myth, the Enuma Elish, 
I think is incredibly, incredibly helpful at just this point. Because you and I can read verses 26, 27, and 28 of Genesis 1, but if we have the Enuma Elish in the back of our minds, which the ancient Israelites would have had in theirs, verse 27 is pretty stunning in what it actually says. Let me read it for you one more time. Here it is. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you remember back to one of the things that we said was that the idea was in the Enuma Elish that because violence, you know, is what actually brings peace and order must be maintained at any cost, that was the story that was believed to be instrumental in the creation of the world. And so it was viewed continually that order had to be imposed on people from on high. And so you got the idea of men over women, masters over slaves, priests over the laity, aristocrats over the peasants, or rulers over the people. You, unquestioning obedience is the highest virtue, and order is the highest religious value. And so you have this view that the kings or the priests were the ones who resembled the gods. You had Pharaoh in Egypt who was worshipped by the people as the spokesman for God and as the embodiment of the gods on the earth. And it was very, very much a, a prerogative of Pharaoh as God to rule over the people in a way that managed to exalt himself and to push people down low. And you got this on all fronts. Kings over the peasants, priests over the laity, men over women. Now, this has been a battle from the beginning of time. According to Genesis 1, it's telling us that, that this is actually how God set the world up. And yet what we're going to see again in Genesis 3 is what happened, what went wrong. How does the world no longer resemble the kind of world we read about in Genesis 1 and 2? And I'm sorry to have to keep repeating this, but we're going to get there. I've just made a decision with this particular podcast to go in order and let the questions come as they do. And so what you'll hear a lot, I'm sure, sorry, but is to me saying, what about this? What about this? What about this? Right. These are the questions you want to ask. This is what we're going to keep moving forward in order to answer but it's really, really important if you read verse 27 in Genesis and think about this myth that believes that the powerful and the rich and the men and the ones in positions of power or the kings or the rulers or the priests are the ones who are really important and the rest of the people are there to serve them. You don't get that from Genesis 1.27. In fact, you get something stunningly the opposite. Not only does the Bible not affirm the idea that only the kings can be rulers or only the priests can rule over the laity, it simply says that all people are made in God's image. They are made according to his likeness, according to his kind, in his image. They are made to resemble him, and he now has a counterpart in the creation 
little versions of himself that look like him and that he has assigned to rule the world on his behalf. So here is God. He is a creator. He is an all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving creator. He creates an entire world, including the creation of human beings. But he creates human beings in such a way that he gives us, he gives to humanity the privilege of ruling, having dominion, exercising authority over the creation that belongs to God, but doing it in God's place, doing it on God's behalf, doing it for God, with God. This is one of the biggest concepts of what it means to be a human. It doesn't mean that we are God. It doesn't mean that we unilaterally get to decide how that looks. What that means is that we are his representatives on the earth, given his authority as a gift to rule over the creation as he would if he were here. And of course, the million-dollar question is, we don't know what it would look like if God were here to rule the world. Precisely why the enemy's temptation in Genesis 3 takes the form that it does. Because the enemy inserts motive and meaning behind what God must mean by ruling, and he convinces Eve that God is simply holding out on her by not allowing her to rule in the way she sees fit. Again, we'll get to Genesis 3 in a few weeks. But what Genesis 1.27 is doing is pointing out in very, very sharp contrast to the Enuma Elish is this idea that we are not relegating rulership or kingly status or priestly rule to a few select people at the top. That is not the way the world was set up. The world was set up so that male and female, both are created in God's image. The man is in fact created first, but the woman is created from the man, and both of them rule the earth together. All human beings, not just the kings, are to rule as God's image bearers, as his stewards. There are no special humans above everybody else. Everyone is equal having equal rights, equal value, and they were to rule as equals. This is what it means. It's equality across class, across gender, across race. This is what the original creation was set up to be. But it's also important to point out that the reason why male and female are stated as they are is because of God's commission for male and female. God has set the world up in such a way that the biological formation of a human being, as well as his or her spiritual formation, social relationship, authoritative role that that he or she is given in the world, all of that combines to form a unit. And in the same way that the beasts of the field give birth to those according to their kind and the trees bear seed which is in them each according to its kind and the reason why male and female are brought together the way they are in Genesis 1 is because again biologically socially 
spiritually, authoritatively. They are to partner together, and God is ultimately interested in bringing together forms of rule to produce life and to produce flourishing. This is what we have at the very beginning of the Bible. We have a creation that is formed and inhabited such that it can flourish, expand, and grow. What we will get when we get to chapter 2 is the idea that there is an entire world that has been created, but the only activity, the only life taking place in that world at this point just happens to be in a little garden. So there is a lot of flourishing and multiplying and spreading and cultivating and life-giving that needs to come to this creation in order for it to flourish the way God intends. He appoints human beings. He appoints mankind. He appoints male and female together to rule over this creation, to cause it to flourish, to bring life to it, to cause it to expand, to cause it to grow. And so it's absolutely crucial the way that biology works. Mankind, man, the male, has the seed. He bears it to, for the woman. She fertilizes that seed and produces a child. This is the way that actual reproduction works. And without going into a biology lesson, this is one of the primary reasons why male and female shows itself as it does right here in the book of Genesis. But it does so as well to point out that we do not have in the original creation of God the idea that men automatically rule over women. Now, you go read history books, and you will see nothing more than that happening over and over and over and over, and the Bible doesn't shy away from it. The Bible paints the same picture, not because it approves of men ruling over women, but because of the way the fall actually happens. What mankind has mistakenly done with his position as ruler what he has done believing he's made in the image of God and the privileges that he or she believes that grants them as a result of being made in his image. It is the fundamental problem at root in the entire world right now. That is a dysfunctional and a broken definition of what it actually means to rule the world properly. This is why no matter how much people try to get around this, you can make a statement such as the gospel or, or the spread of the kingdom of God is in fact something that is political. It doesn't mean that you have a, a partisan position. It doesn't mean that you're going to take a particular side in a, in a political democracy or, or something of that effect, or you're going to elect a certain leader. What it means is that governments simply exist as an attempt to govern or to rule people well. Or if it's communist or fascist or something that, that historically has shown its ugliness somewhere, you might say, oh, well, or that's an example of how not to rule. And that would be perfectly acceptable. But understand, every time you gather a group of people together, someone, somehow, somewhere, is going to define for the group what it means to function well as a group. 
That is governing. That is ruling. It just is that. We get trip up a lot of times over what we choose to call it, but from the very beginning, the question is, what does it mean to rule well? What kind of ruler should we be? What kind of ruling does God want us to be? And what's really, really fun about reading the Bible is to just watch. Watch the kinds of ways that men or women or kings or priests or peasants or whoever chooses to take rulership for themselves. Watch how God responds and then watch how God chooses to rule. Who is he concerned about? Who is he willing to go nose to nose with and oppose and why? And so as we continue to read through, we, we come to find out that being made in the image of God is really, really significant. It's one of the, the primary reasons why actually that Israel later, particularly in the book of Exodus, but right on through the Old Testament, is going to be forbidden from making graven images. Now, this is a topic that may get its own podcast. Who knows how this will unfold? I haven't thought that far ahead yet. But one of the things that it points out to us is that you are not to make an image of God and to bow down and worship it. Now, we watch repeatedly throughout the Old Testament history, the Israelites doing just that. They, they make an image of a, the golden calf being the most famous. But one of the primary reasons why they are not to make images is because we are the image so Israel is scrapping. They want, they want to make an image of a golden calf. You ask why? I would say probably because they just watched their God defeat the gods of Egypt embodied mostly in the Pharaoh and that he showed himself to be extremely powerful and strong. And so they said, let's embody that. Let's put that up on a pedestal with all the gold that we just stole from the Egyptians. Let's melt all that gold down. Let's make a golden calf. That will be our image. When we stare at the golden calf, we'll be reminded of the power and the strength and the might of our God and that he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, take, take crap from anyone, that kind of thing. And so they begin to bow down to that thing as if that thing, God's power, God's strength, God's might, is what saved them, not God himself. But what the Israelites failed to realize was that we become like what we worship. Or as one of my favorite books put it, we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or for restoration. And one of the patterns that you watch over and over and over is that God will repeatedly call his people stubborn and stiff-necked. He says it to them in the Psalms multiple times. He refers to his people this way to Moses, the latter part of the book of Exodus. Stephen reminds the people that they are this way when he preaches to them in Acts chapter 7. Stubborn and stiff-necked. Those are just adjectives used to describe stubborn cattle, stubborn heifers, stubborn and stiff-necked animals that don't want to be pulled in a certain direction. So they jolt their neck up or they bend their back in such a way that you can't direct them where you want them to go. Israel is becoming like the very thing 
that they worship. God's point in making people in the image of God is that when people look at other people, they are supposed to see reflected in the actions of those people the very character traits of the God in whose image they're made. When you build an idol and you stare at that idol, you number one, take your attention away from the human beings, which are the many idols, if you will, the many images of the living God. But number two, idols are dead. There's no life there. Nothing is happening in that gold statue. There's no breath. There's no love. There's no compassion. Sure, you worship power, might, and strength, but what happens to a group of people who idolize power, might, and strength by staring and by worshiping a golden calf? Well, they very quickly become monsters. They become stubborn and stiff-necked just like the calf they worship. And just so you don't think I'm making this up, not that you would ever accuse me of that, but in Psalm 115 verse 4, it says this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now, to me, it doesn't get any clearer. Those who make them become like them, having ears, but not hearing, having eyes, but not seeing. How many times have you heard, if you're familiar at all with the Gospels, how many times have you heard Jesus say that? He who has ears, let him hear. Now, this is a whole nother discussion, but he is responding to a prophecy that Isaiah was given in Isaiah chapter 6 about Isaiah's call to go speak to a stubborn, idolatrous people who will not listen to you because they have eyes, but they have, do, do not see. They have covered over their eyes and are unwilling to look at the truth. Why? Because they have made an image of what they think God is like and have so directed their attention to that image, to that lifeless, motionless image that they are incapable of actually embodying that in a way that benefits the world. And so God says to us, in the image of God, he made him. Male and female, he created them. We do not have a creation story like the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth. We don't. We do not have the strong and the mighty and the powerful appointed by God to rule and oppress those that are less fortunate or who are weaker or who are inferior because we've decided that class or age or race or gender automatically makes people better than others. We don't have that. What we have is mankind, full stop. Made in the image of God, full stop both male and female, full stop. You can expect, if that is the case, you and I could expect to see 
those very glorious things being challenged, being threatened, and being destroyed when sin enters the world. And spoiler alert, that's exactly what you do see when you simply read Genesis 3 for what it is. The idea that all people are created as equals to rule together gets chucked right out the window. The idea that Adam is there to serve Eve and Eve is there to help Adam chucked right out the window. The idea that certain classes or races of people are meant to be equals, not subservient to the point where masters oppress them, that's thrown right out the window. All manner of dysfunction in human relationships breaks down initially when the fall enters and will continually be perpetuated as we move forward. This is why it's so important to know who we were created to be, what we were created to do, how it was that God created mankind. Because if you do not realize who we were created to be, and therefore you do not see all the ways in which we are dysfunctional in our current state, you will not understand all that Jesus has come to restore by coming to be what? Does Colossians 1 say about him? We're told what? Let me flip ahead just so I can quote it correctly for you. I'll read it from Colossians chapter 1. Here's what it says about Jesus in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, to call Jesus the image of the invisible God is to get right back to the heart of what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and 28 are all about. Jesus is the image of God. He's the perfect picture. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14? Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I show you exactly what God is like. If you look at me, not a statue of me, not a picture of me, but if you look at me, the living, breathing, walking, moving, seeing, hearing, talking, speaking, me, you will see God in human form. That is who Jesus is. He's the embodiment of God, which is why Hebrews can say this, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, that's exactly what it means. According to its kind, according to its nature. An apple tree dropping a seed on the ground grows up another apple tree that is of the same nature. It's of the same kind. It's according to its kind. It's after its likeness. It's in its image. These are the concepts. They're straight through the whole Bible. People didn't like Jesus because what they thought they knew about God wasn't who Jesus was when Jesus came. That fundamentally is one of the biggest reasons why there were problems. But Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. It's all about me. It's pointing to me. 
And so what I want you to realize is that here in Genesis 1, we're, we're not even to sin. We're not any of that. We're, all we're doing is grasping the way that the creation was set up. We're looking now at this wonderful part of the creation, the creation of mankind. And mankind is given a task to rule over, to have dominion over the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field and every living thing that creeps on the ground. The human beings, male and female, are given the, the task of ruling over and caring for the creation as God would. God has given us the privilege of being made after his likeness in his image so that we can rule the world the way he would. That's what it all boils down to, is how to rule the world well. That question, how to rule the world well, what to do while you're on the earth, that's what chapter 2 of Genesis addresses quite heavily. And then chapter 3, the essence of the fall of mankind, attacks 100% those very issues. We'll walk about, we'll look at that in way more detail when we get there because it is unbelievably crucial for trying to figure out what it is that we're called to do. But this is it in a nutshell. We are called to rule the world well, to care for it, to tend it, to love it the way God would if he chose to do it himself. But being a God that we will see over and over in the Bible is in love with sharing. He is in love with sharing the tasks that, that alone belong to him sharing them with those made in his image. When God chooses to work in the world, 98% of the time, he chooses to do it through humans. This is our God-given role. It's our God-given task. It's our God-given privilege. But there's a lot of messed up views in the world about what it means to rule well. And we're going to have to take our cues from the way God rules, understand what our tendencies are to rule in ways that are self-serving or that are willfully blind and who we oppress along the way. And we need Jesus' words. We need ears to hear his words of rebuke that says this is an area that you have not been ruling well in. Because yes, Jesus has come to save us from our sins, but our sins are at root because we failed to be good humans. So redemption at its very base is going to be to restore us to becoming true humans, to becoming people who know what it means to live as human beings made in the image of God. That's what we've fallen from, and that's what we need to be redeemed from or restored back to. And so in the coming weeks, we'll jump into chapter 2 next time, and then we will make our way to chapter 3. But again, at any time, if you have questions or comments or concerns, feel free to leave them in the comment section at the end of each episode, and we'll see you next time.